chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we're taking a look at the birth of the early church. That's why I dated your bulletin insert with sermon notes a thousand years earlier than it actually is. February 28th, 1010. Just kidding, as a little uh, typo, as we, we like to refer to them in the office. Uh, and that one's on me. I, I put these together, so I picked that up. But we are looking at the birth of the early church uh, in the New Testament and what it means to experience genuine biblical fellowship as we seek to live in community, investing our lives with other believers. This is a, a part of our longer series on the four core values of our church, which are each steps which help us bring faith to life. Core value number one, if you were here for that, uh, is that we worship God personally, each person individually walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. And our second value is that we walk with other believers. And last week, as we began looking at Acts chapter 2, we talked about what these early believers built into their lives, the things they did in community, the input, so to speak, spiritually, that helped them experience biblical community in Jesus Christ. And I called that the community diet because it was things they were putting into their life. And we were playing off of the biggest loser concept where people change their diet in order to lose weight. But the people on the show also learn how to work out and to exercise to speed along their weight loss process. So this morning, I want us to look at the community workout. The community workout. That is the things that we do as part of or in fellowship with other believers to experience true biblical community and fellowship. And in doing so, as we look at this workout, we're going to see some of the benefits that come from putting these things into practice in our lives. Now, I mentioned last week that the Greek word koinonia is the word uh, used to describe what we most often call fellowship. That word, the, the most simple definition is that of a partnership or of sharing, or, or you'll hear me often refer to it as simply doing life together, being with other people and experiencing life and learning to seek God in the midst of all the ups and the downs and the, the experiences that we have as we go through life together. And the first thing I want you to note this morning as we look at biblical community in Acts chapter 2 is that it brings an indescribable spiritual blessing. When you walk with other believers, there is a point where you simply cannot put into words the benefit and the blessing and what God does in your life from simply being with other believers. Acts chapter 2 verse 43 well, let's read 42 to kind of give you this little background here. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These are the 3,000 people who had, came to, who had come to Christ after Peter's message at Pentecost. Uh, it says, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. I have a question for you. What does it mean to be in awe of something? When you're in awe of something, maybe it's a person, sports team. Remember the first time I, I, in Florida, I got to go and watch the PGA Tour come in town and I'm not a good golfer at all. So going out and watching these guys, I was like, wow, that's really impressive. I was in awe of what those guys can do because I had tried it and was like, I will never be that. I, I was in awe. But how do you describe this, this awe? Now you know what it's like for me trying to prepare sermons sometimes. 
because I'll get this word or this concept. I'm like, I know what it means and I have these ideas up here, but trying to get the words to be able to communicate that to you. It's like, I understand the concept, but how do you describe all? Well, a few synonyms that I found were fear, terror, or dread. That's kind of more on the negative side in awe of something. On the more positive side, words such as wonder, admiration, respect, or amazement. Some of those words rolling around in your mind as I ask you to describe the word awe. So, so you say, yeah, th- those would fit. I kind of have that idea, that understanding. But do they fully explain what it means to be in awe? Well, here were these people who've just given their lives to Christ, who've been baptized and are now meeting together in small groups in homes. And there's this sense of awe about them, this wonder, this amazement at what it is like to be together in community, in fellowship with other believers. It's indescribable to be able to fully grasp and put into words all that that means. And as you journey with other believers in relationship, in fellowship, in community, you will have this same sense of awe and wonder just as the early believers did. How God can take a group of people, whether it's a Sunday school class, a small group, or a ministry group that you're with, how he can take people with different backgrounds, education levels, socioeconomic levels, different parenting styles growing up. God takes all these very diverse people and he bonds them together. There's this unity, this relationship, this this godly friendship that happens. We don't understand how. We would sometimes even look and say, I don't know why we all fit together because we're very, very different. Yet God, in a way only he can do, bonds those people together. You may have heard people refer to their Sunday school class or to a small group uh, as a family. And they're trying to, as best they can, describe that intangible, that indescribable blessing of being in close relationship and community with other believers. And they're not family, but there's this love and this appreciation and this fullness that words simply cannot describe. And you will experience that, this sense of awe, as you pour your life into other people and as they share their lives with you. Well, verse 43 continues, everyone was filled with awe, and it says, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, to be certain, this was part of the reason that the people had the sense of awe. They were watching what the apostles were doing and what God was doing in the lives of believers, and they were really stunned at what was taking place. But you see, these signs and wonders that it speaks of and that we see all throughout the book of Acts, they were basically God's stamp of approval upon the apostles' teaching. You see, men would occasionally pop up and come and speak to people and preach and and share that they had a new message or they had a revelation that God had called them to do this, that, and the other. Uh, And people would go out and they would follow them. But these were false teachers. They were not sent from God. And these, these teachers would counter the teachings of Judaism. And so the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders uh, would come and they would confront those people and they would make them stop preaching their messages and teaching these people because they were leading them astray from God's word and in the books of the law and the prophets. And they made them quit. And that's why the religious leaders opposed Jesus. Because when Jesus came and began to preach and teach, uh, people went and they followed Jesus in droves. And and they came and they heard Jesus teach and they said, wait a second, you're not teaching our interpretation or our view of the, the books of the law or of the prophets. And they thought Jesus was teaching counter to the teachings of the law. But Jesus wasn't teaching counter 
to the law, he was teaching against their wrong interpretation or their wrong application of the law. So he was trying to set the record straight, but they didn't like that. They said, it's not the way we do it, so we don't like it. And so ultimately, they had Jesus killed, thinking they were doing the right thing by stopping this false teacher. And so now Jesus is gone. He's been crucified, he was buried, he he was resurrected. And now these men come, these apostles, and they're carrying on this message. And people would have inevitably been skeptical. They said, hmm, we don't know. You know, you're kind of saying the same things. You're talking about this Jesus guy and I heard him or I heard stories about him. But he was killed as a common criminal. I mean, really, moral people, good religious leaders, they wouldn't be executed as a criminal, would they? And then there were these rumors that were going around. The Bible tells us that, that the, the religious leaders tried to put these false things out there, these accusations that Jesus' body had been stolen by his disciples through the night. So even there was still a little suspicion, this cloud of mystery around whether or not Jesus had been resurrected. So as the apostles preaching, people are going, I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm buying it. So God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, gave them signs and wonders so that they would preach a message and speak about Jesus and God's love and what God wanted to do through people. And people go, hmm, maybe. And then they would see a lame man walking or a blind man seeing or a mute man speaking or a dead person living. And they would go, whoo, that's pretty impressive. You're saying this message and you're, you're saying these things and now I see these signs and wonders. Wow, maybe God really is in this. Maybe God is the one who sent you and Maybe I should listen to this message. Maybe I should place my faith in this Jesus because it really looks like God has called you to deliver this message and that God really is saying this message is true and right and are from my followers. And so they had this sense of awe because of the signs and wonders, but again, because of this experience of being with people which was unlike anything they had ever known. And then in verse 44, we begin to zero in and get some really clear examples of what it means to live and to be a part of a biblical community. It says in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread together and in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts do you see how many times together is mentioned in that three times in two verses does it use the word together that these people were together you see what i hope you see from that passage is this that biblical community is where needs are met biblical community within that context is where needs are met The church ministered to people, it says, as they had need. These believers gathered together. Now, some have argued that this is the basis of communal living. They've said, you know, we we sell all of our stuff, we live together. Or that it even lays the foundation for a communist society where everybody uh, sells all their stuff. They don't own anything. Uh, The resources are pooled together and then distributed equally among the people. In theory, that's how communist society is supposed to work that everybody's on the same page and and everybody's equal but that is not what this passage in acts 2 is teaching for a couple of reasons first the people had possessions to sell it says on their own when these people uh, saw a need they sold it and they used the money 
to help meet that need however they saw fit. Acts chapter 5 tells us that sometimes people sold property and they gave every bit of the money uh, to help those in need. Yet at other times, they gave a portion of the money. And it didn't matter what the amount was. It was that they gave and they met the need. So it was totally up to them if they wanted to sell what they owned. So they had possessions and to give whatever portion of the proceeds from the sale of that possession that they wanted to help those in need. But in communal living, you sell everything. You don't own anything. We all own it together, and we distribute from a common pool of resources. And that's not what we see in Acts chapter 2. But secondly here, we see that it said they owned homes. It says they met in their homes uh, to, to, to eat together, to break bread, uh, and to spend time in fellowship. And so they owned homes. They had a possession uh, that they themselves were entitled to. And, you know, this is the only time in the book of Acts where this scenario is described. So this is something that people did totally voluntarily on their own. This was not a prescribed practice. It wasn't a binding practice that was mandated for believers. Whenever people saw a physical need, when they saw a physical need, they responded to it as they felt led. So the first kind of needs that are met in biblical community are physical needs, When people need food, as we're talking in Haiti, or or clothing, or shelter, or whatever the case may be, we would meet those physical needs. The important thing to see here in Acts chapter 2 is that the people were led, and they did minister to one another. Now, contrary to some opinions, the first line of defense in meeting needs and ministering to people in our church is through our small group ministry. I want you to understand that. The first line of defense in our church for meeting needs and ministering to people is through our small group ministry. The biblical model for ministering to people in their time of needs is not that a pastor or even a team of pastor would do all of that work, but that the members of the body care for one another. That is the biblical model that we see all through the New Testament. And a real common sense reason for that is based on numbers alone. This week we did a bulk mailing, and I'll share about that at the end of the service, but we did a bulk mailing uh, to all of our members. We sent out over 1,200 pieces of mail to be able to distribute to everyone. So if we took our three and a half pastors and we divided that list of members up, that would give each of us about 342 families uh, to minister to. Now, if we took one family a day to connect and to minister with seven days a week, it's going to take us almost a year to connect and provide ministry to those 342 families. Now, what do you think the odds are that a crisis or emergency or a need is going to fall on your scheduled day for ministry from a pastoral staff member? Probably slim to none, right? I mean, the emergency doesn't call ahead and say, hey, is Tuesday work for you? You know, things don't work that way. Now, I want you to understand me. Our staff does pastoral ministry. We visit hospitals and emergency rooms and we go to homes and we make phone calls and we send emails and we counsel and we do the full spectrum of things that come with ministering and caring for people in our church. But I will tell you right now, it is not humanly possible that we could meet and care for and minister to every need that takes place in the life and the work of this church. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of you, but it is the truth. It is not humanly possible that we could cover all of those things. And beyond that, it's not biblical that we would even if we were able to do those things. Here is the bottom line. You will receive more and better care from your Sunday school class and a small group than you will from a pastoral staff. 
And I'm not saying our pastoral staff, I'm saying any pastoral staff. You know, generally when I visit the hospital, I'll stop in and I'll visit with people, get an update on their condition, talk with their family, uh, stay for a few minutes and say, hey, how can we, we minister to you guys? You guys have any needs that I or the church can meet? I'll pray with them and their family and then I'll go if there's another person in the hospital or another hospital and then I'll go make another visit. But so often when I'm there, I regularly hear people talk about how their small group members came and sat with them all hours of the day and night or for hours on end visiting and caring for them and doing things. They talk about how they made food for their family. They cared for their pets. They mowed their lawn. They got their mail. They did stuff around the house, all sorts of things. And they go on and on about how blessed they are to have that group doing those things for them. And it blesses my heart when I hear those things. That doesn't upset me and I don't get jealous and go, well, I should have been doing that. I'm excited when I hear those things. Because that's the way God designed it to function in the life and the work and the ministry of the church. And it's healthy and it's good. And my heart rejoices when I hear those things. Because truthfully, sometimes I don't think of doing those things. But beyond that, sometimes I can't even do what fellow members and groups have been able to do. I know we've got classes here that part of their ministry is they've gone and they've built a a number of handicap ramps for people that need it for wheelchairs or walkers and things to get in and out of their homes. Let me tell you, I couldn't do that even if I had the idea. I mean, if I had the idea, you drop me off with the lumber and the power tools and the tape measure and say, here, go to it. It's not going to be good at the end of the day, all right? Just go ahead and back the ambulance in because when they walk on it, it's going to be an issue, all right? I don't have the skills to do that. Shelly will often prepare meals and we'll go and we'll deliver and we'll drop those meals off. But let me tell you something. If that's left up to me, the question's going to be, you want chicken or pizza? Because I'm picking it up on the way, all right? I mean, I just, I'm not able to, to, to fix and to do those things. I'm thrilled when I hear and I see classes ministering to one another because it's a beautiful picture of the church being the church and functioning like God designed it. But so often I hear, but the pastors didn't come and see me. And I want you to listen to me closely. I am not excusing myself nor our pastoral staff from duties and responsibilities. There are times and situations when we need to be there and we do our best to be there and to try to minister to you in those situations. But I know that this morning I need to ask your forgiveness for things that have not happened in the past, whether under my watch or someone else's else's watch, because I know that pastors have dropped the ball before. No excuses, no justifications on those things. We can miss the mark just like anyone can. And I know and recognize those situations and know that they have happened. There have been times in my life when I should have made visits and I should have made connections and I didn't. And I know that every other pastor would tell you that same thing. There were times when when we just weren't there. And so I ask your forgiveness in those moments. And I ask for your mercy going forward in the future because we're not perfect people and there's a great likelihood that we will miss things in the future as well. And so I ask for your mercy in those moments. But I can tell you it's never our aim to let a need or a ministry opportunity go neglected. We don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I think what am I going to not do today to care for somebody? I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. 
But the point that I'm highlighting in Acts chapter 2 is not a lack of responsibility from anybody because we all have a responsibility to care for one another as part of the body, but it's that you will receive more and better care from a small group than you will from a pastoral staff. In Acts chapter 6, deacons were enlisted and recruited to distribute food to widows so the disciples could minister, it says, it could, could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. So providing care is a joint effort between pastors and deacons and the body as a whole, but the best level of care comes from a small group that you're a part of and you're investing your life and your relationship with those people. Now, I'm going to tell you a secret, all right? You guys know what it means to have a secret, right? You can't tell anybody else, so I'm going to let you in on a secret. But to do that, I want you to listen carefully for just a moment. All eyes up here. This is a secret for you and you alone. Don't tell your neighbors. Don't tell anybody not in the worship center today, all right? It's just between us. To experience the care and ministry of a small group, you need to be in a small group. To experience the care and ministry of a small group, you need to be in a small group. I think my spiritual gift is pointing out the obvious, right? I mean, I know I do. But that's the truth. Now, I'm not saying that, that if you're not in a group and you have a need that no one's going to minister to you. We try to do that if we know of the need and, and people can be there. But it's hard for people to minister to you if they don't know the need, if they don't know the situation and know what's going on. I visited a lady one day in a previous church who was, um, well, how should we say? She was upset with me. And so I was visiting in her home and we were walking through some issues of my lack of being a Christian and all this kind of stuff. And uh, as we talked through, through this, she brought up one of her points was, well, when I had this cancer spot removed six months ago, you didn't call, you didn't come visit, you didn't do anything. And I looked at her and when she paused, I said, well, ma'am, I said, do you know when I found out that you had a cancer spot removed six months ago? I said, about 30 seconds ago when you just told me. You know, I had no idea she had had this cancer spot. And she had, this had festered for six months of frustration at me that I hadn't been there. And I didn't even know. That was one of those days when I left. I was like, Lord, can I go sell cars? Because I, I, I just can't win. You know, I'm being held responsible for information that I, psychically, they just, I wasn't clicking that day, I guess. I don't know. But when you are in a small group and people know you and you know people and they, they know what's going on, they minister and they care for you, even if you're not asking. And I'm not saying this as you walk into class going, I have a need today, you know, and people go, oh, we need to minister. But when people know what's going on, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, they feel led to do things and say, hey, how can we help out? Can we keep your kids? Can we bring you some food? Can we come and do whatever? They want to do that because they love you and they care for you and they want to minister to you in that way in your time of need. And that's what it means to be in community. That's what biblical community looks like, caring for one another and ministering to people, partnering, sharing your life and all of your resources with other people. So physical needs are met in the context of biblical community and small groups. But the other needs met by the early church were spiritual needs. This passage told us that they met together every day in the temple courts and that they broke bread together in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, these new believers didn't go to the temple to offer sacrifices as they had done for decades before because Jesus was now the ultimate and final sacrifice, but they went to the temple courts for the teaching of God's word. 
because people were there who taught from God's word uh, and helped them better understand it. And you know, one of the interesting things is as they went and they continued their study of God's word, it was even more meaningful to them. It took on a new power and they had a new understanding because now they saw God's word fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit had come back to them because Jesus said, when I go to the Father, I'll send my Holy Spirit to you who will guide you, he said, into all truth and help you remember the things that I've taught you. And so now as they heard God's word, they had a new understanding because of the work that Christ had done, but also because of the Holy Spirit guiding them and teaching them in the truths of God's word. And when it says they broke bread together in their homes, they celebrated the Lord's Supper and they remembered Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection. And then they participated in these meals and they were called love feasts because as they got together, they loved on one another. And so they had these meals and as they had their meals and they would remember Christ's death and his resurrection, they would talk about the apostles' teachings who were sharing with them about Jesus' life and his ministry. They would share with them things that they were learning from God's word that the Holy Spirit was teaching. So God's word was a part of their community. And it's important to keep God's word in the center of biblical community because God's word is what changes us. We don't change ourselves. This isn't a a self-help course. It's God's word that changes us. The principles contained in God's word help, help us be different people. When we rightly divide and rightly understand God's word, we're able to apply it to our lives and the different situations that we encounter. And your study of God's word, you will be able to interact with it more in the context of small groups than you do from a sermon. Because in small groups, you can raise your hands and you can ask questions and you can clarify. And you can try to raise your hand in here and I'll go, I see that hand, I'll catch you after service is over, all right? Because I'm kind of in this streams of consciousness talking up here and I've got stuff and I've got a time and I'm I'm getting through it. We're not able to interact in, in sermon and preaching as much as I would like to, but I catch people after services are over all the time asking questions. Well, what about this and what about that? And, and I love to be able to dialogue, but you can do that in real time right then in a Sunday school class and say, hey, wait a second, I've always heard this or I thought this or what about this verse over here in the Bible? How does this fit into it? And you're able to talk and interact with the teacher and other people in class can be able to share or you can say, well, wait a second, you know, what does this look like as we try to do these things? You know, I've never been able to accomplish that. So how do do you actually do this in your life? And so we talk about, you know, we look at those things. um, And so you're able to interact more with God's word. And the more you study God's word, the more rich it becomes. The deeper you get into God's word, you'll be amazed and astonished at how incredibly complete it is as it speaks to every area of your life. There is not one aspect, not one component of your life where God's word does not give you a teaching or a truth or a principle to be applied. It is complete in helping you deal with everything you could possibly encounter in life. For example, next week, we've got a new Sunday school class starting for couples. Whether you've been married 40 years, four days, or getting married in four months, this class is going to focus on helping you apply biblical principles and truths to the marriage relationship. It's not marriage self-help. It's biblical self-help for your marriage relationship. And I know Bart and Lori, and in addition to the truths and the principles from Scripture that are going to relate to uh, the marriage relationship, you're going to get practical tools and ideas and resources for applying these 
principles and these truths to your lives and to your marriage relationship. And then here's the great thing. It's like a lab. You remember labs when you were in school that you'd go and you kind of got to put your hands in and you could do stuff? It's like a marriage lab because you can come in next week and go, man, this was amazing. You know, the Bible says do this. And this week we made a commitment. We were going to do this thing. And here's what happened this week. We talked. We laughed together. We had a date night, whatever. And you can talk about the successes of that. Or you can come in next week and go, dude, that was really bad. I, I really didn't get this right because I tried this and it just, it, it didn't, you know, I, there's something wrong right here. And all the other men in the room can go, nope, we're all like that too. You know, you're not alone, brother. And, and, you, and, you, and then you talk about, you know, how we can do these things. And so we apply God's word to our lives. And small groups are that place where you can interact with other believers and go deeper in your study of God's word. Last week, I talked about building things uh, into your life in biblical community. And this week, you've seen what happens and what flows out of your life as you commit to walking with other believers, as you minister and you care for one another. Here's the catch. I've already laid a little bit of a foundation, put it out there. Experiencing biblical community only comes when you make it a priority in your life. It only comes when you make it a priority in your life. A friend of mine wrote this, authentic community must be fought for and the opposition is fierce. Now that is an incredible statement. Authentic community must be fought for and the opposition is fierce. You will have to make adjustments in your schedule for biblical community. That's not just class time, being able to go in and sit under teaching of God's word and and building relationships with people. That's social activities and being together outside of the classroom with with lunches and dinners and fellowships and those things so the relationships can, can grow and build. But it also includes service opportunities where your class will work together and you will come and you will do things to help put your faith into practice, to minister to families or to do things in our church, to help us do outreach events. Uh, I know there was a Sunday school class this week of some of our senior adults who were not able to go and to put together these buckets and lift and carry they just physically were unable to do that but that class collected money for these last two weeks and they came and they gave resources some of the individuals in there who were able to do that took a group of three or four they went to walmart or wherever they went and they had their big carts and they got all of these things and they put these two buckets together for their class they said we had a great time you know talking and visiting with each other as we did that so that's being the hands and feet of jesus christ and ministering and helping one another But I'm going to tell you this too. It is not always neat and tidy when ministering to people and meeting needs in their lives. Death is not a pretty or an easy thing, even for believers. Yet it is in times of grief that small groups become the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. You know, as I noted earlier, emergencies don't call ahead of time and block out chunks of time in your schedule. You may get that late night early morning phone call from someone about an illness or a crisis situation where you need to go and be with them and show love and support in some way, keep their kids so they can take a spouse or or visit a loved one at a hospital and and minister to them in that way. It sometimes is inconvenient on your schedule and on your time to invest in the lives of other people. And I'll tell you something else. Sin is an ugly thing. And when you see the damages and the carnage it leaves in its wake from drug and alcohol and physical abuse and other destructive patterns, it leaves you with a heavy heart and a burden for those people 
who are in bondage to that sin. And you wonder why people won't give those things up when they see the hurt that it's causing their spouse or their children or other people in their lives. And when you see that the people that you know and love are the ones who are hurting, it burdens you for those individuals who are trapped in sin yet who cannot find the strength in Christ to overcome those things. And it weighs heavy on you to not be able to to help someone or to get them to make wise decisions. It's a hard thing to watch and to see those things play out in people's lives because of the choices and the ungodly decisions that they make. It weighs heavy on you. The opposition to biblical community is fierce. The first obstacle you have to overcome is Satan, who will tell you, it's not a big deal. It's not that important that you get in a small group. He's just up there, yapping. That's what Satan's gonna tell you. But you need to win that battle to realize it is important before you're gonna be able to win the other battles that are gonna come in your time and in your schedule. But if you are willing to fight those battles that come as you walk with other believers and you experience biblical community, the blessings you receive as a result will far outweigh anything you may have possibly given up in order to invest your life in other people. That's when you'll experience what it means to do life together. And then you'll experience the awe that the early church did as they walked in fellowship and community with other people. Perhaps the best summary of the experience you'll have from being a part of biblical community would be stated this way. Your joys will be greater because people celebrate them with you. And burdens are lighter because people help you carry them. That's biblical community. Would you make a commitment and set the priority in your life to do those things that you might experience biblical community as well?